On this episode of Oakland Asian Mom, we talk to Diana. She's a multiracial, white and Asian Hayward mom and works as an academic librarian at Cal State East Bay. Diana has a deep commitment to anti-racism and she is involved in the Bay Area chapter of Surge, which organizes white people for racial justice. As part of our conversation, we talked to Diana about her childhood growing up in Dixon, what it's like being a multiracial woman in Surge, and about her identity as a Yonsei, or fourth-generation Japanese-American, and the cultural breaks caused by internment. I was really drawn to the way Diana lives with such deep and thoughtful intentionality. And for me, as a mother of multiracial Asian and white children, I found this conversation to be particularly rich and very thought-provoking in the way that it made me think about how to interweave both identities of my children in the way that I parent. Thanks for listening. You are listening to the Oakland Asian Mom Podcast. Okay, welcome to this episode of Oakland Asian Mom, and we have a special guest today. We are talking to uh, Diana, and I was going to say our friend Diana, but actually Diana is one of um, the rare guests where we were introduced to her by a good friend of ours. So we share a mutual friend and we heard that she's an awesome person and also um, listens to the podcast. And we thought that we would kind of invite her on and listen a bit about her journey, both professionally and personally. So welcome to the podcast, Diana. So much for having me. Excited to be here. Is our first question of um, what do you think of our podcast? (laughs) I don't want to put her on the spot. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's not totally part of it. It's not the reason why we had her on. Yeah. Let's let's get to know her a little and then we'll ask. (laughs) It was more like, okay, no. Um, When we heard that you liked the podcast, Sarah and I were like, really? Like, because we've never met before, you know, just through our mutual friends. I was like, oh, I actually felt really touched. Um, yeah, just true. because um, we always think only our husbands and our friends from our community listen. And so the fact that we have somebody who we just met via email and tonight, it was really touching to us. So thank you for listening. It yes. really means a lot. <laughs> of course, I love it. <laughs> oh, so we are going to start out with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that is if you could tell us a bit about your ethnic and cultural roots uh, where you grew up and where you call home and the ethnic and cultural roots of your partner and your children. Sure, of course. So um, I identify as mixed race Asian white. So I am Japanese American and uh, German Danish American. So my, my dad is Japanese. So I am Yonsei, which is fourth generation here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about the same side on my mom. So my mom is um, white and German Danish. Um, I grew up in uh, the Central Valley of California in a little rural town um, in the Sacramento um, Valley. And so uh, if you know where Dixon is, that's great. If you don't know where Dixon is, it's near Davis. And if you're driving up uh, 80, uh, the cow jumping over the moon sign, that's my hometown. It's really to me, it's big now, but it was really small when I grew up mm-hmm. there. Um, and that was definitely home for a really long time. And uh, we can always talk more about that. It's very different than like the Bay Area. I love the Bay Area, but um, 
when I think of home, I think of rural and small mm-hmm. places, but um, I live in Hay- downtown Hayward actually now. Um, and I love, I love Hayward uh, a lot. And that's what home is to me now. Um, my uh, husband, my partner is um, white and he also is of German heritage. Um, and we have one daughter who is a preschooler. And so she's mixed like me. And actually, since my husband also happens to be of German descent, she is literally mixed like me. So oh, yeah. 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 Um, it's funny. I just watched this Lisa Ling show about Locke, the town of Locke, mm-hmm. that, which is in the Sacramento, like Delta area, which is a mm-hmm. historically Chinese American city. So actually, is was your family in Dixon for multiple generations? No. So, um, my parents moved there. Um, my mom went to UC Davis, uh, for, she's a retired veterinarian. So mm-hmm. she went there, um, for vet school and met my dad and they moved to Dixon cause, um, it was good for where they were working, but no, my mama's family is from Nebraska mm-hmm. originally. Um, and, but she moved out here when she was pretty little, though, if you're really good at accents, people can still pick up. She's from Nebraska. And then my dad's family, um, after the war, uh, when they came back, they lived uh, in the Delta region. So um, they were farmers and in Bacon Island, um, you can find photos online of that. And so they lived in the Stockton area and that's where my dad grew up and his brother. Okay. Oh yeah. Awesome. And do you have any siblings? Diana? I do. I have one younger um, sister and she's about four years younger than I am. And my sister uh, is um, adopted and she's Korean. Oh, okay. So was she adopted from Korea or was it a, yeah. Okay. My, my sister came over when she's about four months old um, and she was born in Seoul, South Korea. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Um, My last question about Dixon is, is it is it multicultural? Was it mostly white? I'm just kind of curious what it was totally. like growing up. Yeah. Um, so like, unlike the Barrett, yes. Um, no, we were like one of the only Asian families there. I think there was maybe two or three others. Um, I think we were the only mixed race, like interracial family mm-hmm. there. Um, the, the makeup or like the demographics when I lived there is about half to maybe three quarters white and then the rest were um latinx mm-hmm. um mainly of mexican heritage okay because um, of the agricultural law uh-huh. yeah yeah i have a, a one of my best friends um she grew up in kind of a similar like agricultural kind of um and um just to hear stories of how i don't know if in your city where you have the like the owners and then the laborers of the different, you know, and how they just had one high school and everybody went to that high school. So it was sort of this interesting dynamic between of the kids of the owners of the, you know, of, and then the, the kids of the, of the migrant laborers, you know, and how this high school experience. So is that something that resonates or? Yeah, well, not, there wasn't at least like in my like understanding, right. As like, you know, a kid growing up and stuff, there wasn't a huge variation at that time of like, you know, really wealthy people. Mm -hmm. Like I can remember like the one girl who was wealthy and her mom took her to New York to see plays and stuff, but the rest of us like didn't have 
money and yeah. stuff. Um, I, I do distinctly have memories of um, the children of migrant farm laborers in there because they'd be in my class for a certain period of mm -hmm. time, like in elementary school. And then when their parents had to move because, mm -hmm. you know, the crops yeah. um, moved, yeah. they would be gone. And I even then felt like it was really sad because yeah. they weren't there yeah. anymore. And, yeah. you know, that's uprooting. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it was a little town, like, yes, there was one school for each like grade level, you know, my graduating class was like around 150, I think, um, K through 12 always got a minimum day when it was the fair was in town. We had the mm -hmm. Dixon Mayfair. It's like the longest and oldest running fair in the state, oh. I think. And so K through 12, because it was kids day on Friday, we all went to the fair also because like a third of the school was out for 4-H anyway. So you might yeah. as well go to the I was fair, just going to ask yeah. if there was a 4-H. <laughs> yes. Wow. Big 4-H yeah. um, used to be a big, uh, you know, like, what is it? A stockyard in Dixon. I think the Walmart's there now. So that close, but like, yeah, it was, it, it's very rural, you know, like when the Safeway came in, the whole town came out to see the Safeway when we've got our first traffic light, it caused more accidents than before because nobody had had new, oh my God. like it was a four-way stop and then the traffic wow. light came in. So yeah, like when I say like, yeah, farming town, it was like a bedroom yeah. community and then yeah. surrounded by farm. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting that you could just get back on 80 in like 20 minutes. You're like in this very industrial, like, I don't know how far <laughs> is it from Davis or even Sacramento, like, oh yeah, super close, right? It's super close. Like I tell people, like I grew up in, if you know, like the, uh, what is it? Superman, like backstory with Smallville. Like yeah. I grew up in Smallville and Sacramento was metropolis. <laughs> um, I always thought that when I was like going over the causeway into it. Yeah. So like, oh. I'm a small town girl. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing about Dixon. Yeah. I guess okay. we kind of went on a tangent, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you work as a librarian um, mm -hmm. in a college and uh, Cheryl and I are big library fans. And so we would love to know sort of what led you to becoming a librarian in this context. And maybe if you could just tell us a little bit more about your work in general. Sure. So um, I have been working in libraries since I was about 16, I think. Um, so I worked in my public library when I was in high school, and then I worked in the science library when I was going to undergrad. Um, but like most people, I had no idea that like librarianship was a profession, even though I worked in libraries. I don't know if I even talked to a librarian when I was working <laughs> in the college library. Um, don't tell my students that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so when I got out of undergrad, um, I was in the Peace Corps, and then oh. when I came back from the Peace Corps, well, I was you have like, to tell what us I... where? Because we're, we're very curious <laughs> people. So. Yes. Yeah, so I, so I went, my undergrad, um, I did ecology um, and evolutionary biology, and then I went, uh, I was in Bolivia for okay. Peace Corps, okay. so um, I was coming back, and I was like, well, who's going to hire me? What am I going to do with my life? And um and I was like, hey, librarianship, I bet I, I could do that. And that sounds fun. And I like to learn about everything and help people. But I didn't really want to be like a K through 12 teacher, even though mm -hmm. I like teaching people. Mm -hmm. um, so I applied and happily got in. 
and um, moved back east to do my master's degrees in that and then uh, decided snow was not for me. <laughs> and so I moved back happily to California in the Bay Area. And um, now I work up at East Bay. I'm an academic librarian. I love it. Um, so my days are really varied, but I do a lot of um, come in and guest lecture, help students with their uh, research, um, how to do literature reviews, how to evaluate sources, all that good stuff that people just think like, you're just going to like wake up one day and know, and yeah, yeah. no, you only like are born knowing how to breathe and cry. Like you don't know how to, <laughs> you have to be taught how to do this, right? It's not osmosis. Um, so I do that. Um, I'm also, I've been educated and trained as an archivist. So I also manage the university archives. So the history, um, and the special oh, wow. collections and help like, you know, researchers with that, um, I run our Instagram account. Oh, <laughs> wait a second. You're the, the, the library Instagram account or the whole universities? Yep. No, I just the run library. the library. Okay. The library, not the whole university. Oh, I run wow. The um, we got right now we're then. Yeah, yeah, we're like we'll, we'll we're trying to you. ramp up our student assistants to do it, and so I'm helping with that. But um, yeah, it's 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 me. Um, and uh, yeah, so I do a lot of that stuff. I help. Um, I liaison to the biological sciences and history because I have degrees in both of those areas. Um, yeah, I I like to do um one of the things I'm really excited about. We do um. We've been doing like trying to think of ways we can support the whole student and belongingness mm -hmm. is really mm -hmm. important to me and equity. Um, so like, mm -hmm. you know, y'all know it's been a hard time with this pandemic, yeah. right? So like yeah. little things for the students. So we do like wellness bags for them and that's super fun because then I get to design pretty labels and stuff because I love to do that. Um, so it's great. Like if you like to learn about everything, you want to help people and occasionally be able to read a book, uh, librarianship is a great, great thing. Wow. Yes. It just confirms that I chose the wrong career. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did have um, a local librarian on, on, I don't know if you heard that episode. And I love again, that episode. Yeah. <laughs> and again, Sarah's like, yeah, I said, you can still do it. Yeah. I think, I I think just... sometimes I sense, I send you Sarah, like different little, like uh, job postings, like you can still, you can still be a librarian. <laughs> I think that was the, yeah, the calling that I did not pursue, but wow, that's all really great. Yeah. So do you, um, kind of when in your work with students, are you helping them with like research, you know, papers or projects or kind of, I'm curious uh, in what capacity <laughs> you're interacting with students for your job? Yeah. So, um, we used to have a required course for, you know, general education, right? Uh, since we're like a liberal arts institution, a public institution, students have to take general education, right? GE to go. And so one of the classes used to be the information literacy class, which we taught. So uh, in the department, we had running like 24 sections every quarter of this. So oh, wow. I taught a lot of freshmen. Uh -huh. And so it would be an entire uh, whole quarter course. Now we're on semester. So it's a semester long course, um, teaching how to research and evaluate and really get in depth. Um, and so they can find out information they want and validate yeah. that that's good information, all that stuff. Um, I don't, uh, I co-teach um, one of those courses. They're not required anymore for students. So we have many fewer courses. Um, I co-teach one in science communication, which is really fun with one of our instructors usually. 
um, another one of my colleagues. And then for a lot of what I do is um, professors in departments like in biology or history will invite me to come guest lecture to their students. And so we'll, they'll, because they have a research assignment like writing a research paper, a research prospectus, I'll come in and help them you know, learn search techniques, see what the library has to offer, because even though, you know, we Instagram and we like have our website and we try to like make everybody know we're here, uh, sandwich boards and all that good stuff. Sometimes <laughs> they still don't know that we're yeah. here and we're here to help them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a lot of that kind of outreach too. And they're like, oh, you have that database? I'm like, yes, we pay lots of money. Please use them. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You need one of a, a twirler. You need to get a student intern <laughs> to instead. I, in yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what they, what I just want to say, but I, when I said twirler, I think you knew, right? The person. Yes. The like, sign. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And, and, or the balloon guy that yeah. my kids like that, that just, Oh yeah. You know, like that there's air and then you're like, Oh my gosh, look at that balloon. It's just flapping in the wind, but it's so fun to watch. But anyway, just yeah. an idea, just an idea. I love it. <laughs> well, I was wondering, are there any like funny stories, because I can imagine I was a student of the late 90s. So we didn't have the internet. We didn't have our smartphones. So, you know, referencing was about and getting references were like all about uh, like the Xerox machines and the microfiche and the micro. Mm -hmm. the, like, like. So nowadays, I'm sure it's, it's sort of like, oh my gosh, everything is at your at, you know, PDF, right? So, but there are mm -hmm. any funny stories that you can recall about a you know, a student's request or question to you that you're like, oh my gosh, um, this is kind of hilarious. Yeah, so I, I can't, you know, because we're very big in privacy, can't yes, tell you yes, like what yes. students like rep, as you know from- Yes, I learned, we learned that. <laughs> yes, we're very big into that. Um, but I can tell you, uh, which does not break confidentiality or privacy or anything, I was helping a student once and we were in a database and uh, it was for um, different research studies and it mm -hmm. actually allowed you to break down by age cohorts, you know, cause that's really important, right? Cause like if you're doing research and you want, you know, elementary school children, you need this age versus mm -hmm. like, if I want to look at like geriatric, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are different studies. And so I was like, oh, look here, you can see uh, where the, the age range for middle age, right? And um, oh, no. the student looked at that thing and she, and they're like, oh, I thought middle age started at 30. I'm like, okay, we can't talk for a little while. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yes. Uh, I have to remember I'm much younger, but no middle age did not start at 30. Okay. Don't tell me that. But when does middle age start? Like, <laughs> so I knew that was going to be the next question. It's, yeah. Think, 45. I think. I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's in the later forties, early fifties. Really? I, I was going to say maybe was. mid, mid thirties. No, <laughs> no, you're not middle-aged yet. If you think no. about like the, the lifespan, um, thank yeah. goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like, if you think down. about it literally in the lifespan, it would be maybe more like 40, 45, but yeah, yeah, for like for like Asian women like us, because we have like the longest life expectancy, yes. right? So yeah, um, 50. 50 only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. So so I'm about middle age. That's what my kids say. Halfway to like 90. That's how they describe my 45th <laughs> birthday. So I'm like, that's right. Good job at doing the math. 
Well, you mentioned that you have, um, you know, you mentioned a lot about Dixon, which is, is kind of fun to hear. So was there any um, distinct memory in your childhood or, you know, experience that, because um, today, actually, one of the things we're going to talk about um, later on is just your work in social justice, right? And I think, mm-hmm. so is there anything in your childhood that you realized, or your young adulthood, um, that, you know, social and racial justice is something that you wanted to work for? You, you mentioned a little bit about that story about um, the children and, you know, um, you noticing how that uprooting um, could mm-hmm. be a little bit de- destabilizing for them. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I love this question. And I was trying to think, like, I wish I had, like, you know, the the moment, like, you see in, like, film or something that the person knows that this is what they're going to do. Um, I was always a super sensitive child, and I took things very seriously, even at a very young age, um, and grew up in a house that, uh, you know, if if you could help out, you did help out. That's just mm-hmm. what people do, right? That's your duty you know, like if you see something that's not right, you have to say something and try to do something. Um, And so I didn't ever conceptualize it as like social or racial justice um, when I was little, but I remember like, for example, in elementary school, right? We, you know, you learn about Earth Day or something like that. And I was like, why aren't we recycling? So I got my friends to write a letter to the principal so we could get recycling containers on like our elementary school campus. And I was like in fourth grade then or something. And so like, I was like, we should do this. And I remember like, you know, protesting other things. And like my aunt is, my aunt is very, one of my aunts is very um, big into social justice and racial justice. And So I always was inspired by like what she was doing and talking about and like forwarding me stuff and thinking about like, yeah, just, and it just kind of like, you know, you do one thing and you learn Mm -hmm. more and so you keep moving. Um, So I think for me, it probably started with like environmental justice um, because I've always been interested in um, animals, natural world, obviously, since I got an ecology degree. And then it moved in because that is, tied to social and racial justice, right? Like environmental pollution we know is Mm -hmm. concentrated in black and brown communities. Um, We see that in the Bay Area. And so, yeah, um, I think it comes out of being raised like uh, in a a faith tradition that's very much into that. And then um, having, you know, people around me that were like, they're like, yeah, raise money for this cause. Yeah, go protest that. It's, you know, it's what you do, so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um, you say you have a little, a, a preschooler. And so mm-hmm. has, and so, you know, you've, as a librarian, as a Peace Corps um, member, um, as an environmental justice person, has activism shifted in different stages of your life? And what's that like now that you have a little one? Yeah, definitely being a mom, I think we can say safely changes you a lot and makes you reflect. Yeah, it's totally changed. I mean, I went into, I was just like your prototypical, like idealist going into the Peace Corps, right? Like I wanted to help people. I thought this was great. You know, it wasn't until much later, like thinking about all of the like complications and and privilege and stuff around being a Peace Corps person, I think 
I still think like the ideal of the Peace Corps is great, but um, how it's like enacted could be better. Mm -hmm. um, but then, yeah, you know, it, it definitely shifted um, from trying to do more just like individual work and using my work I see as activism on campus. Um, but it's really moved into like a broader, like trying to do systemic and bigger things as I became a mom, because I was like, I don't want my child growing up in this. Yeah. And I want her to see that, you know, we're not just like donating money to causes that we do. And we're not just doing individual things, but like we are part of a community that's going to do the work um, that we want to see, you know, imagine and create a better better world for everybody. And it's definitely shaped our parenting. We are, um, my, my uh, husband, I'm really thankful he is like an actually good white man. Um, <laughs> and that like he has done, and when I say that, I mean, actually like, we're not just saying like, oh, good white people. No, like he's done the work. He's like gone through like the intensive, like, you know, uh, workshopping and courses and read the books and reflected. And we, we have like these talks like all the time. And so we are very on the same level of like, we are consciously anti-racist parents. Um, we are conscious about speaking to race and oppression, at, you know, at a three-year-old level right now. So mm -hmm. like, you know, clearly not getting into like big words, you know, yeah, things she yeah. can understand, but yeah, but yeah, it's like, it, is very conscious in like what media we allow her and by media I mean books because that's all she gets um <laughs> but like books you know what toys we bring into the house what we talk about if we see something out you know when we're walking around downtown together when we're going places so it's it's definitely um you know like I I always say like you can't separate the activism from what you do with and the anti-racist, like, that is the foundation of my work. It's the foundation of my parenting and just, like, what I'm trying, the person I'm trying to be mm -hmm. and the choices mm -hmm. I try to make. Wow, I feel like we need a whole other episode about conscious anti-racist parenting. Yeah. So maybe we'll have a part two if if Diana um, agrees. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so you mentioned, you know, you are a multiracial Asian and white person and your daughter is as well. And um, how would you describe your parents' approach to raising you as a multiracial child? And how has that shaped or influenced the way you're raising your own child, if at all? I mean, I, I feel like a lot of times we will either adopt things that our parents did or maybe mm -hmm. do a different way. So just curious about um, that part of your life. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, talking to other people who are multiracial mixed, it's really interesting. Like some parents are very conscious about talking about it. Like mm -hmm. we were very, uh, and it's even more interesting, right? Cause my sister's adopted. Um, we didn't talk about race. Like it mm. wasn't just like color blindness. It was like mm. color muteness. Um, and, and also that we were like one of the few like interracial families in this little rural town. Right. Mm -hmm. so, like I stuck out, like I really stuck out, like, you know, I think though, apparently not for some people, like I, it's clearly that I am part Asian, you know, I mixed, I was very Japanese 
looking when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. Um, and then some of the German genes took over, you know, in, in a junior high and high school, but like, so looking back, it was really weird, but you know, it was also, if you think about like the time I was growing up, you know, it was like, oh, colorblindness is good. We don't talk about race because Mm -hmm. that's like racist and bad to like notice these differences and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so like, I don't fault my parents for it really, because that was like, you know, and, and also like thinking about, right. My, my dad, um, because he is Sansei, so my grandparents are Nisei, they were in the camps during World War II, and afterwards, you know, it was assimilate, like assimilate, mm-hmm. be, yeah. you know, the quote-unquote American, which we all know means white America, um, so, you know, like, don't, like, just don't, like, bring any uh, focus on that, and so that's definitely shaped the way we're raising our daughter, because I was like, no, you, we need to like talk about race. We need to talk because it is such a big, you know, import, you know, race, as we know, it's not an essentialist thing. It's not a biological thing. It's a social construct, but it has real impact Mm -hmm. in our society. And so we need to talk about this so that she's comfortable with it. She, she knows where she has privilege and where she might be oppressed. Um, And that like, she feels comfortable being multiracial and she can like fight back against some of the mono racism that happens on both sides um, about being multiracial and that she has the vocabulary and her self-understanding and knowing that like, we support her being multiracial and however she wants to identify and um, in her racial um, identity when she is growing up Um, that we're here for her and that she can talk to us about it and she doesn't have to like rediscover parts of her heritage later. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm really, yeah, it's like definitely one of my big things uh, with parenting is Mm -hmm. that you have to, we have to talk about it and we have to give our daughter the tools to talk about it and to be able to navigate how we are and then use that to make the world how we want it to be. Yeah. So funny. I mean, even though we have very different stories in our backgrounds, <clears throat> I feel like there's a lot of parallels. Like my grandparents um, were in the Philippines during Japanese occupation, you know, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then my, my parents are, are boomers, you know, who immigrated here. They're mm-hmm. um, the first generation here. So I think during that era, um, yeah, like just the impact of assimilation I think uh, my parents are very bilingual because they spoke English in the Philippines. So they came here with that kind of linguistic uh, advantage, right? To be able to navigate mm-hmm. here in, in the States. But growing up, um, I grew up in Daly City. So there's a whole bunch of Filipinos. I cut, so, mm-hmm. and, and, and so it's interesting how, um, you know, we were raised like, okay, just speak English in the home because of that, this idea of assimilation, even though... I, from the get-go, um, my, I was, my racial identity was really like from day one, I knew as Filipino, right? Mm-hmm. Because I kind of even grew up in this um, mono, like just Filipinos in the morning, in the afternoon and at nighttime. <laughs> I don't know. It's just- Filipino 24, seven. <laughs> exactly. Three, it's like, yeah. It's like my grandparents <laughs> live us. All the people my mom and dad hang out with were mostly Filipino. I went to Catholic school. I would say like, you know, 60%, you know, we're Filipino. Mm -hmm. I went to church. It was all Filipino, you know, so 
it was, yeah, I was like, oh my gosh. So I'm always just amazed, like as much as, as, um, how our childhoods are so different, you know, like, um, my, my kids definitely have this racial identity of being Filipino and Chinese. Um, but our place makes a huge difference. You know, like mm-hmm. we're not, we're not, it's not Filipino 24, seven, three, six, 365, you know? So, um, just context, like how you were sharing, I'm like, Oh, there's so much parallel, but there's also much uniqueness to, to your, to everyone's experience. Right. Yeah. I think that's why it's like, and pretty much that's why Sarah, I do this podcast, right. Is because everybody has a unique, um, story to tell, um, about their, where, where they grew up, um, their time, you know, things like that. Yeah. And I'm just kind of also thinking about how being Japanese American, you know, played into, um, that, that assimilation narrative yeah. for your family. Mm-hmm. Whereas, for my family, my parents are, are immigrants. And so, um, yeah, I mean, English is still sort of like uh, very much a secondary language in our household. And so, um, yeah, but at the same time, like, I mean, they, they never really talked. It was just, we were Korean. Yeah. We were Koreans. We were immigrants. Most of our families still live there. So I don't know if it was ever, we really talked about race but it was just kind of there yeah (laughs) I would say um but one thing for me is that I'm very intentional about cultivating my children's sort of Korean and Korean American identity Mm. but not so much at cultivating their like multiracial identity Mm. um so I do think that that's sort of like a a learning curve for me to better engage in that um and for my husband and I both to, to be able to engage with that better. And so I really appreciate, um, yeah, you sharing about how you've been doing that intentionally. I actually, I, I'm kind of surprised at your answer, Diana. I thought you were going to say, you know, you went to Obon. And you, you know, I, I thought you were going to say that you grew up really immersed um, yeah. in, in Japanese American kind of culture and community because of where you are now. So yeah, that's... Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it is interesting. There was such a cultural break. And, you know, like if you look at the demographics, right, of the API community now in the United States, the vast majority of API um, individuals and families are first or second gen. And so then you have the Japanese Americans, mm-hmm. like some, just some, because, you know, there's still immigration, you know, like we've been here a really long time. So it is a different experience and the assimilation. And so, yeah, like it's a lot of, um, is reconnecting and, um, you know, re, um, just, yeah, reconnecting with the heritage and like learning. So like my grandparents spoke Japanese, but they didn't teach my dad or my uncle, like all of my aunties and uncles in that generation in the Sansei. So the third gen, none of them Mm -hmm. speak it. Mm -hmm. And so like, I am now trying to learn it. And it's like one of the hardest languages for English. Mm-hmm. Like I speak Spanish. I don't speak. <laughs> so I'm trying to do that so that, you know, my daughter has that connection. Um, and yeah, like it is, it's, it's, it's really like quite a, it's quite a trauma, like an intergenerational trauma for that. Um, mm-hmm. And then the loss of culture um, connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So 
If you could meet anyone who has inspired you along this journey, uh, whether they're alive or not, who would it be and why? And what is one question that you would ask them? This is like such a fabulous question. I know I keep saying this, but they're really great questions. So I think like the expected answer would probably be somebody like, you know, um, Yuri Kochiyama. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Like, oh yeah. Like her, like what? Cause I mean, amazing. Right. Um, but I was, <laughs> I like the laugh. So like, you know, cause amazing, but I was thinking about this and like somebody who inspired me and I just, didn't know very long was my, um, my, my dad's father, my grandpa, Mm -hmm. um, my grandpa tack, he died, um, when I was four incredibly suddenly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I have a few like very strong memories of him being this just really gentle person. Um, I have my beloved Maneki Neko, my lucky cat, um, piggy bank that he gave me that still has a silver dollar in it because the top slot is bigger than the bottom. So it can never come out, um, you know, <laughs> unless you could get it out, you know, the little tiny slit again, which I can't. Um, and I just remember his, like, just his warmth and how awesome he was. And, you know, he went through the internment, he fought for the United mm-hmm. States, you know, yeah. he went overseas and did all this. And yeah, I, I mean, I would have so many more questions in one, but if I could ask him, it's like, cause sometimes, you know, feeling overwhelmed with all of the problems of the world and all of this. And like, how am I going to be, you know, even just a good parent It's like, how did you not lose hope? How did you keep going mm-hmm. on even in those like super dark days? Because yeah. I meet random people sometimes who know my grandparents um I can tell you a funny like airport story if you want but like they made impressions and they managed to get through like something that I think you know would break and did break some people so Mm -hmm. I would want to know like how did he keep the hope you know yeah and yeah inspiring yeah tell us the the airport story so like I said uh, my family is like on my dad's side is California you know came to California in California. So um, after the war, they farmed in Bacon Island, nine, I think it was in the Delta. Um, And so they had uh, different um, families that lived on the island with them, Um, a lot of Filipino laborers at that Mm -hmm. time too. And so I, you know, when I was going to grad school, you know, I had to fly back east. And so my mama was dropping me off and we went into the airport and, you know, up to the counter to check in and you know, tag my luggage. And, um, this Filipina, uh, woman was behind the counter and she's like looking at my last name and she's like, Wakimoto. She's like, do you know June Wakimoto? And I was like, that's my grandma. (laughs) And she's like, really? She's like, June Wakimoto that lived in Stockton and had the, the fish market. And I was (laughs) like, yeah, that's my grandparents. She's like, oh my gosh. And I was like, yeah, my grandma, my grandmama died, you know, like a, a little while ago. Um, she's like, oh my gosh. She's like, wait until I tell my mama that I met June's granddaughter. I need to come Aww. around and give you a hug. And so she gave me a hug. And then she turns to my mom and she's like, do you want to pass so you can go to the gate with her? Cause you know, you can't go to the gate. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and so Ooh. my mom's like, sure. And so she like, printed out an official pass and my mom got to give and she was just like it's like such like you know one of those things that's like 
the world is small and we're like yeah. all connected and it was yeah. just like really sweet because it made my day and it clearly made her day so yeah. yeah so how did you ever find out how she knew your grandma yeah her parents uh worked on bacon island and so she grew up like playing around the island okay. um, uh-huh. for part of her childhood so she knew my grandparents oh and, wow yeah, yeah they what a small did. world yeah so your grandparents had a, a market Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. After after the farming and then like there used to be, you know, like quite a lot of Japanese in Stockton. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they had a fish market um, that was like attached like a little one with their house when um, my dad was growing up. So oh. I always yeah. knew that there were a lot of Filipinos in Stockton, but I didn't know that there was also mm. a, a big Japanese community there. Wow. Yeah. There's not as many now, but Mm -hmm. there was like after the war and like Mm -hmm. in the 50s and stuff. Yeah. So, um, gosh, I kind of feel like we should have asked this question up front, but um, you are a pretty active member of Surge in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And could you tell us a little bit about Surge and how you ended up becoming part of the organization? Yeah. So Surge Bay Area is... um, SEARCH stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice, and SEARCH Bay Area is one of the chapters, and SEARCH National is a lot of local chapters all throughout the United States, Um, and it is basically um, working to smash white supremacy um, in all its forms, and uh, it is mainly um, organizing uh, white people you know, to use their power and privilege and understand that and, um, you know, combat white supremacy, though it is accepting, you know, anybody who wants to join can join. Um, I got involved with it after um, the George Floyd Mm -hmm. um, murder. And I was looking for something um, that we could do that I could do something. And, you know, at that time, my daughter was really young, and I couldn't, you know, do a you know, like get out of the house a lot and the pandemic was happening and all of that stuff. Um, and so I was like, honestly doing the librarian thing of Googling, um, actually duck, duck, go, because I use that because it's a privacy <laughs> search because um, I'm a librarian. Um, and so I just stumbled upon Surge Bay Area and the like next day, I think they were having an action hour, which is when everybody gets on a Zoom together and there's just this big agenda and you go through and you call people, legislators, you know, sheriff's Mm. department stuff and do advocacy together because collective action works. And I thought that was just like amazing. I could do something instead of just feeling like, what could I do as one little person? And you saw like all these people on the call together. Um, And the facilitators were so great. And then they're like, oh, we're doing like, you know, an intro meeting if you want to know more about Surge. So I went to that and um, I was like, okay, these people seem cool. And like, I'm not getting any weird vibes. Like, um, you get sometimes or like, why are you here? What are you? Or like anything like that. And um, so I assigned like a, you know, an online like survey of like what I was interested in. And I am involved um, in the youth and families um, committee for that. So ours, you know, is um, towards looking at how, um, you know, families and young people can, you know, combat white supremacy. How do you become an anti-racist family? What can you do? How can you influence the school, um, your kids, you know, 
whatever um, context you have and situation you happen to be in. Um, and it just felt like a good fit. Like I was a new mom. I was like, I need to learn from people who are, have been working with kids and had kids and are like the elders. Um, and then I think I can like add stuff um, to it. And so um, it's been really great. Like I helped create and co-facilitate a um, workshop on uh, multiracial like identity and families mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. to get that in. Um, and just like, yeah, and we just do really good stuff. Um, like today, you know, uh, going in and trying to support not closing down uh, predominantly black schools in Oakland for yeah. one thing, you know, abolitionist work, um, economic justice work. Um, you know, we have a lot of partner organizations that are all BIPOC, so uh, black indigenous people of color led organizations to make sure that since surge is mainly white, that they're taking all of the steps uh, and following the lead of BIPOC-led organizations um, mm -hmm. so that you don't have the white savior complex or anything like that. And so it's just been, especially youth and family, it's a lovely space. The people are amazing. I feel very held and um, supported in community. And it's like a really nice, um, another nice thing, because like at work, we have um, an Asian Pacific Islander um, staff and faculty association, which I'm really big a part of now, um, thanks to our mutual friend and some other people there. And so like, I always tell people like politically, like I stand with the API community, but like I am mixed. Um, so I also feel like, you know, I have to, um, do work around the privileges that I do have. And, um, so Barry just happened to, I happened to find them at the right time and, it's worked yeah. really well. Yeah, my question, I was like, I'm wondering, you know, what's it like for you to be part of Surge? Um, thank you for sharing um, in great detail, like just learning about it, it's pretty amazing. Um, if it's predominantly white, what's it like to being, a, you know, a woman of color, um, kind of straddling? I mean, all your life, you've been straddling so many yeah. different, um, you know, identities in that way, but um, to be, again, maybe one of the few, in a predominantly white space. Um, yeah, what's that been like for you? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think like, I, you know, all multiracial people have very different experiences, but when we get together, we have a lot of similarities, especially, um, you know, if you're, you know, part BIPOC, part white, um, like you said, it straddles a lot. Like I'm used to being very fluid with, you know, how I interact with people because of that. Um, it's overall, it's been really good. And I think everybody there is there for the right reasons. And mm -hmm. so if I bring up something that I was like, mm, this like doesn't work for me, like it just, it doesn't work for me. Like talking about like, you know, uh, identity formation, for example, like, and yeah. the white, white identity formation and like coming to consciousness of like privilege and like becoming anti-racist, like that journey is there are some parallels, but it's very different than like multiracial identity formation. Um, and so like, I bring that up. Sometimes there's like a little like, oh, but you could do this and that. I'm like, no, you can't. Um, and people are pretty cool about that. And I think because they're so self-reflective and there's reflection all the time of like, are we making this accessible enough? Um, there's a culture of like, you know, being honest, um, not brutally honest, but like 
in a way that's going to harm somebody, but like saying Mm -hmm. like, oh, like this didn't work for me. Why didn't it? Um, That they are conscious about it. So like, and when we introduce ourselves, even in our own committee, like every time we always say like, what is our racial identity? And it's like every time. So it like reminds people of who's in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think like, as my, as my political like identity as a, an API woman has grown, I can see like more of the things that like people like take for granted, like um, white people sometimes like think that like, or like perceive me as white, I think sometimes. And I like, we can talk about white passing, white presenting, like I hate like the whole presenting thing. But um, so I think like I feel comfortable because <laughs> like I I am, I, I acknowledge like I'm very fair skinned. I've always mm-hmm. been very fair skinned. Um, so, you know, with colorism in this country. Um, but for me personally, it's been fine. Um, I know mm-hmm. a couple other mixed race um, women that are also in it. So that's really awesome to have other people. So like we can bounce ideas off each other and um, their solidarity in that beyond the solidarity of like just working with everything because of the identity. Um, But it has, it's been good. Um, I'd love, I wish there was like a mixed race space that's like in the Bay Area to do activism with, Um, but I haven't found that yet. But I, I can say like, if people are on the fence, like definitely go to like a search action hour or one of their workshops and um, yeah. it's good people, like mm-hmm. they're doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think, um, you know, it is moments um, like the George Flo- like the, you know, those, uh, the racial justice um, protests during, gosh, it was it the summer of 2020? Yeah. Was it 2020? Yeah. Um, and we're already in 2022. Like, in some ways, how do we keep the energy and momentum? Um, and I'm sure as organizations are feeling the challenge, right? Um, because it, it starts to ebb and flow in some ways, you know? And so thank you for just your, um, um, your commitment, you know, up at, it's been, it's been, it's been, it's been a, a while. It's kind of crazy to think about it. Yeah. 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 yeah no, you hit it. You like yeah definitely it does ebb and flow and like uh the the elders like that I've learned from they're like gotta be in it from the long haul it's Mm -hmm. not always sexy there's a lot of like committee time to get the the sexy bits which are you know the protests or the workshop or you know Mm -hmm. getting the legislation passed but there's a lot of just like you're doing it in community you're calling the legislator again about this thing or doing this um but it all like all those little voices together in community mm-hmm. make a difference. So that's, and it's the community that sustains you through like yeah. the like ebb when you see like, you know, and it's, it's horrible, but it's true. Like a tragedy happens, like numbers skyrocket yeah. to do stuff. And then because, you know, the attention span, but it's the community that, you know, supports each other through that. And so you just continue to organize and, you know, be ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. These elders you mentioned, they, I kind of want to meet them. They sound pretty awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's definitely a couple on my uh, committee. Um, and I don't know if they're like, I, I consider them elders for like their experience and like mm-hmm. their commitment and just their like 
deep, deep seated knowledge for organizing and all of this stuff. I, they're not that old. So like if they're listening, don't get mad at me for calling you an elder. They're wise and sage. But yeah, they're very just- They're middle-aged uh, according to your student. Like, yeah, they're probably middle-aged. Just in their thirties, you know, just yeah. in their thirties. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that, Diana. I feel like, wow, we've covered a lot of ground in our time together. Um, and we're going to have our cut fruit, cut and peeled fruit segment now. <laughs> Is that what? Yeah. We, we, we renamed this the closing segment as the dessert slash peeled fruit uh, segment. Lovingly. Uh, yes. Lovingly peeled. Uh, so we always end our episodes with, um, you know, two fun questions. And the first question is, um, what is your Asian mom superpower? So I'd have to say my superpower for this, um, it comes down from all of my aunties and stuff mm -hmm. to organization. Like, oh, yes. Hands down is organization. And as uh, my husband will attest, he'll be like, Diana, how did you get that much in that space? Like there's not enough atoms <laughs> room in there, like only one atom in one space at one time. I'm like, it's just my superpower. We're going to get it all in. It's going to be Tetris. It's going to be beautiful. So when and you say like, organization, like spatial organization, mm -hmm. spatial mm -hmm. organization, uh, when we move once, uh, so under the bed, he's like, okay, we got it. I'm like, nope, there's more I've organized. And he's like, there can't be more. It's like literally physically does not work by the laws of physics. I'm like, well, there's more. And then also just schedule wise, you know, you know how yeah. it is being, you know, yeah. Asian mom, you're like, this schedule and we're doing here and then we're going to be here and yes, we're going to make it here and it's all going to be beautiful. And did you get the birthday card? You know? Yes. Very um, good. I was going to yeah. say, um, or were you talking about the aunties or Japanese aunties? Yes. Okay. Cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to just pick a side. Um, yeah. but I'm thinking, oh, you know, um, is it a cultural thing that has been passed down um, the whole aesthetic. We had another guest um, mm -hmm. who was also mixed of uh, Japanese um, mm -hmm. heritage. And she said that she appreciated uh, the aesthetics and beauty of, mm -hmm. of the Japanese, the, the values of yeah. it. So I'm wondering if we should add the spatial ability or is that just maybe the Wakimoto uh, <laughs> strength? So like, it's definitely from both sides. Like my mama is hecka organized and neat, <laughs> like, the cleanliness is both a Midwest thing and definitely a Japanese thing for organizing. And then like, you should see like the agendas we get itineraries when we have like Ishimaru family reunions. Like it's, it's, we are there. It is intense. We have spreadsheets. It's like <laughs> This is Cheryl's family. Like, I, Oh yes. Yes. Cheryl's we, family is so organized and you Cheryl are so organized I know well. yeah. I had a little bit of an organizational meltdown before this so that's why I texted Sarah I gotta lean on you today because I had I have so many coordination many overlaps yeah. summer camp right I know practice yeah <laughs> Diana in a yeah. couple of years I mean you might be going through this now too but I feel like when elementary school hits like the whole summer camp coordination fiasco <laughs> starts in about January and it's just yeah. like, oh my gosh. Well, the second question um, is a nice gentle one, is a question to reflect about um, what has been a really nourishing practice for you this past year? We just kind of started, we're in like the Lunar New Year, but um, if you think about the past 12 months, 
what has been a really nourishing practice? And can you say nourishing for us again? My nourishing practice. Yes. (laughs) You know, it's just a nice word. It's a lovely word. Yeah. I don't, I feel like it's underutilized. So I'm going to try to incorporate that into my vocab more. It can be, it can be your daily word, right? Tomorrow you should have daily words. Um, so yeah, I take, I take, uh, nourishing practices, self-care very seriously because, you know, wow, has it been hard? Um, I have become, uh, what is it? Um, converted to guided meditation Mm. that has been an incredibly nourishing thing. Um, my husband and I do that before going to bed every night. Um, so that's been incredibly nourishing. We also have had, I don't know how many years it is now, but we have a gratitude practice together where we will say our, the three things uh, that we're most grateful for, for the day together. And that's really nice right before bed to like reset um, together, you know, and it's like, when our daughter gets, I mean, everything, she tells us everything now, but you know, it'll be a family like nourishing practice. And then I have to say, we have a very small little tiny backyard, but um, definitely like so many other people gotten into the gardening. And that mm-hmm. is just, you know, with the earth, I, I there's just something about that. I, I wish uh, we were, you know, rural so I could do like forest bathing or something, but since I can't, I have my little baby momiji tree and like my flowers and the seeds and um yeah I just I love that but yeah so those are those are the things that nourish me and my soul keep me going wow and so uh, for the daily guided meditation do you do an app or do you do it um does your partner like we just take turns reading out loud how do you how do you do that yeah we um have it uh (laughs) Uh, I found out that like, um, we have Kaiser, (laughs) Kaiser has a free calm app, the calm app. So like, I'm a big converted to the Mm. calm app. We were just doing meditation for finding different guided meditations, you know, for free online, but now we're definitely calm app people and we do daily calm or one of the, like, we've done a lot of the, um, like, you know, seven day, 21 day meditation cycles and stuff. And it's good. It helps. Yeah. And it's kind of a nice way to wind down with your partner. Yeah. Okay. I'm taking notes. I'm taking I know notes. I'm going to like, Hmm, doing both those things tonight. <laughs> I, I also believe in, you know, and it's probably the Japanese, I, the, you know, power of rituals and family uh, rituals and how that can help. So yeah. That's, yeah. That's nourishing. I, I definitely think we need to have a part two with Diana rituals. <laughs> we'll talk about rituals conscious Mm -hmm. anti-racist parenting and what else do you cook oh yeah I forgot to ask about food darn (laughs) yeah Yeah, so really quickly so my husband's an amazing cook so I can cook but he does cooking I am a big um well I like help him with like we make like I'm like okay no you can't that's not how we do rice, honey. So like, um, but, uh, you know, show him how to make the sushi and the maki, maki sushi and all mm-hmm. of that. Um, and then I'm a big baker. Oh, so okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah. We love food. Yeah. I, I feel like in the Bay area, well, I mean, probably generally all over the world, but maybe especially in the Bay area, there are a lot of 
enthusiastic eaters. <laughs> we have great food here. We do have just, great it, food. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, do you have a favorite Hayward Asian restaurant that you want to plug or do you go elsewhere for your Asian food? Sure. No, I will plug um, in downtown Hayward because they're also just lovely. Um, Sapporo is in mm. downtown Hayward. It's a um, you know family run Japanese restaurant. They make fabulous uh, veggie tempura, um, which oh, right. I love. And then my uh, daughter and husband love their yakitori and then their tonkatsu. Um, and, and I like, we need to like, I want to become close because they have like the best um, salad dressing they make for their mm. little side salad. And I want to know what the secret is because it's like the best, like, mm. it's delightful. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Hayward's coming up, man. I heard your farmer's market is really awesome too. So. Oh, love the farmer's market. That's where we get all our. Yeah. And I, I hear it's like reasonable. Like it's a real farmer's market where it's like reasonably priced the ones in yes. Oakland. I'm sorry to say just too, it's too expensive sometimes. What you have to do is you go to the old Oakland one on and you Fridays look where yeah. the Asian grandmas <laughs> and that's how you yes. do it. It's, it's interesting. I mean, this is the first time that we have had like a conversation with Diana after coordinating online. And I'm really struck by you. You are very intentional about your life, Diana, and it's inspirational. Mm -hmm. I think like with parenthood, it's hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can be intentional about some things, but I feel like um, there's a lot of intention um, that you are weaving into your family fabric. And um, I'm really encouraged by that. So thank you for sharing some of that with us. Um, we're really grateful for your time and um, your openness. Thank you so much. It's been a lovely conversation with both of you and being able to get you to know both of you a little better through this. So thanks so much for having me. Take care and don't forget to call your mom.